there's a, there's a reason the book of Psalms is one of the favorite books of the Bible for so many Christians. Everyone from Augustine, the great church father, to Luther, the great church reformer, to Spurgeon, the great church preacher, to Bono, the great church singer. At, at staff meeting this past week, um, or actually a couple weeks ago, we, we did something as a staff called uh, the Well-Worn Pages. And what we did, what we were invited to do is to take our Bibles and to, to share with the rest of the group some of those passages that are, are favorites for us, those passages we, we constantly go back to, those passages in our Bible that are uh, wrinkly and have coffee stains on them, the ones where the pages feel like they're almost falling out. And it was interesting how it felt like over and over and over again, people kept turning back to the Psalms. Jesus loved the Psalms. Jesus quoted the Psalms more than he quoted any other book of the Bible. And it feels like even in my own quiet time, the only place sometimes I want to turn is Psalms. Why is that? I think it's because the book of Psalms is an encyclopedia of human emotion and experience. Or if I could put it more Eloquently, to quote a theologian, uh, the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. See, the Psalms almost are a mirror for us. They show us and help articulate the things that we feel deep inside, the things we're living in the midst of. So it feels like then the Psalms are almost the most realistic book of the Bible. They're, they're brutally honest about the way that life is, and it feels like then they're able to give us, in, in, in one psalm or another, really a, a true picture of, of what life is being felt like. Anger, awe, apathy, suffering, shame, sorrow, love, loneliness, lament, Hope, helplessness, happiness. From, from the mountaintop to the valley, it feels like the Psalms help us navigate our way through life. Now, there's typically two different approaches to emotions. We either condemn emotions or we crown our emotions. See, if we condemn emotions, we, we downplay them, we minimize, we kind of flatten and, and gloss over the way we feel. Often we do this if we feel like we have to earn someone's acceptance, especially if we feel like we have to earn God's acceptance or earn his favor, then we don't really want him to know what we're feeling. We don't want him to know the anger that we're experiencing. And so how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm fine. We just, we just downplay our emotions. We condemn the way we feel. Or then you crown your emotions. You, you, you say, well, this is how I feel, and so this is right. How, how dare I, I go against what I'm feeling? This, this, is, this is part of me. We, we make our emotions our, the, the, our guide for our life. This is what I am, so don't, don't change the way I we just accept our emotions. Now, now, the Psalms, though, give us a third way. See, the Psalms don't suppress our feelings, 
but they don't also elevate our feelings. They don't analyze our feelings, but they don't vent their feelings. Psalms pray our feelings. We pray our feelings. We, we bring our, our feelings to God who can either change our circumstance or change the way we feel about our circumstance. Uh, it was a few years ago now, my family and I were in Louisville, and in Louisville, at the beginning of the Kentucky Derby, they have this thing called Thunder Over Louisville. It's one of America's largest fireworks shows, and it's kind of you're sitting there on the bank of the Ohio River, all the lights go off, and, and then there's kind of two bridges in front of you. They're only like 500 meters apart, but, but because it's America, they have to do the fireworks show off of both bridges. They literally just replicate it, so it's bigger. And so we're sitting there, the lights go off. I'm with my family, and you hear the whizzing of the fireworks go up in the air. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 go the fireworks. And in that moment, I realized fireworks are not always the best thing to take your young children to. My, my, my not yet three-year-old daughter turns around. I, I see the terror in her eyes, and she books it to me. She runs straight at me. She throws her arms around me, and she says, Daddy, why did you take me here? I think, though, that's what the Psalms do. We run to God and we say, why do you have me here? See, see, see she did something in that moment, my daughter. She didn't, she didn't just accept her feelings. Well, I'm afraid, so well, so be it. She didn't ignore her fear and just, and just let it kind of overwhelm her. No, she turned to me because I could do something about it. I could either take her out of there so her circumstances would change, or she would know that at least in my arms she was safe. That's what the Psalms do. We, we, we run to God and say, God, either take me out of here or help me know that I'm safe. So this morning, we're gonna look at I think one of the most complex emotions, and that's doubt. It's doubt. Look, look at verses one and two again. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That, that language of feet stumbling or, or feet slipping is a poetic way of the Bible saying, I almost lost my faith. I, be, I began to doubt God. I, I almost slipped into eternal destruction. I almost lost my faith. See, I think that image, though, of, of feet slipping or stumbling is, is also a very helpful way of us understanding what doubt is. Um, Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York City who, who dealt a lot with skeptics and, and seekers, he called doubt spiritual vertigo. 
It's spiritual vertigo. Doubt is when our mind struggles to understand what our eyes see or our heart feels. A little while ago now, I was walking back to uh, the church building. This was at an old church where, where my family and I were, were worshiping. And it was already one of those super embarrassing moments because I had said my goodbyes to everyone. I had made it to my car and then I realized I had forgotten my Bible. So I have to now go back and do the whole like, hey, why are you here? I thought you were leaving already. Anyway, so it's super awkward. And I'm walking back, my head's down. I'm just trying to just pass everyone so they don't really talk to me. And all of a sudden from across the street, someone goes, hey, Daniel, have a great week. See you later. And I'm like, oh, shoot. So I, I lift up my head and I go to wave at them and I, I trip. Now, here's something you need to know about me. I've rolled my ankle like a gazillion times and I have no muscle in my ankle. So if I just trip a little bit, my whole body just crumbles. So it was one of those like, eh, and then I just literally fold in half, like onto the sidewalk. That, that's a little bit what, what doubt is. It's when my mind struggles to process what, what my eyes see. It's when my, my mind struggles to grasp the circumstance that I'm in. See, often we think that doubt is actually, uh, or that faith rather, is opposition to reason. Faith is, is opposed to reason, but that's not the way the Bible speaks about faith. Faith is believing the evidence despite what we feel. It's believing what we know to be true despite the circumstance that we find ourselves in. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not, it's not we walk by faith, not by fact, or we walk by faith, not by reason. It's we walk by faith, not by sight. See, it doesn't matter what I'm seeing right now. I, I trust in what I know to be true. And so what is it that causes the, the psalmist to doubt here? Well, in verse 1, he says, truly, God is good to Israel. Look, look, look. If, if those who follow him with a pure heart, then God will bless them and be good to them. But he says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, he can't square those two things. He knows, yes, God is good to those who trust him, but it seems like all of the wicked people who want nothing to do with God, they're the ones who are living it up. And so he doubts. It, it's interesting, I think, for us to see here that anyone can doubt. Anyone can doubt. We read that Asaph wrote this psalm, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph most likely was from the line of Levi, which means he's a priest. Uh, uh, more than that, he's, he's a worship leader. He, he writes psalms. He, he writes scripture. And, and he's the person who's supposed to help people sing about who God is. And yet he's the one who's doubting. See, um, I think it's unfortunate 
that, that the church has almost become a place sometimes where, where doubts are taboo. I, I, I heard the story of a girl this week uh, uh, who, who left her Bible-preaching church to join some other organization because she felt like at least at that organization, they would listen to her questions. They, they would try to, to answer some of the doubts she is experiencing. See, we hear doubt in the church sometimes, and we go, we, you can't bring that here. It's like bringing a medium-rare steak into a vegan restaurant. It's like, get that out of here. P- please, please leave with your, with your doubt. We, just, just believe. And then what happens is we have these, these doubts, these questions, these gaps in our knowledge that are just kind of stacking one upon the other until eventually the whole structure crumbles. You need to know something. God is not intimidated by your doubts. He he has a whole book of the Bible. Job is a book of the Bible of a man who wrestles for 37 chapters with doubt. We have Psalm 73. God decided that for millennia upon millennia, we would read about a person who doubts. God is not intimidated by your doubt. If you doubt, you are welcome here. And so if you call yourself a Christian, you're welcome here. And if you call yourself a non-Christian, you're welcome here. You're among friends. Actually, let me tell you this. If you're just a skeptic, of course you have doubts. But you need to know something. Your doubts are probably not as big as some of the doubts we experience as Christians. Because we actually know more about God and there's more for our circumstances and our experience to actually butt up against. See, doubts are not only a part of our lives as Christians and non-Christians. Doubt's actually a powerful thing. Doubts actually catalyze our spiritual journey and help us uh, be brought into deeper relationship with God. When you think of doubt in the Bible, who is the one person you think of more than anyone else? Thomas. Right? First name doubting, last name Thomas. That's how we know him. He, he's, he's doubting Thomas. And, and hear this. Look, Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. So, so he walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus do incredible things. He saw Jesus heal people who had no business being healed. He saw Jesus calm the water in the storm. He saw Jesus confront the religious oppressors of the day, right? He experienced that. And so in Thomas's mind, he's going, he's seeing all of these facts, all of these things about who Jesus really is and the way he's living. And he goes, that's the Messiah. That's what what Thomas believes. He believes that that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that he's the one who would save people from oppression and who would defeat evil one day. But then all of, some, all of a sudden, something happens, right? Jesus dies. And so that's why we know him as Doubting Thomas. Jesus dies, and all of a sudden, his circumstances, his present circumstance, doesn't line up with what he knows to be true about Jesus. I thought the Messiah doesn't die. But he did do all of those things. He can't help us anymore, but 
he brought about so much change. They killed him, but it seems like he had the power of God. So he's doubting. He's wrestling with his feelings. They're butting up against his true knowledge of who Jesus is. And so all of a sudden, though, then Jesus comes back to life, right? And his disciples happen to actually encounter Jesus. And they're like, Thomas, no, no, you need to know something. Jesus is alive. And Thomas goes, no, thank you. I'm not believing that. You know what? It's not even going to be good enough for me to see him. I I won't believe that that Jesus is the Jesus who died. I'm not going to believe that that Jesus is the Jesus I walked with unless I get to put my finger in his hands, those nailed, scarred hands. Oh, oh, and because, you know, there's a lot of people who actually had nails put in their hands. I want to put my hand up his ribs cage where where the spear went in because I know that almost never happens to people who are crucified. If I get to do that, then I'll believe. And so Jesus shows up to Thomas. And now what does Jesus say? This is what I think is so interesting. What does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond? Jesus is not like, Thomas, how could you do that? How could you doubt me? I mean, you're insulting me. He doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? He says, come here. He gives affirmation to his doubt. He said, okay, okay, come here. He, he, he helps Thomas work through his doubt. Come here. Put your hands in my scars. Put your hand right here where the spear went in. And then Jesus says, don't disbelieve, but believe. He doesn't hear doubt and go, how dare you? He doesn't hear doubt and go, well, that's just the way it is. Too bad. You just got to live in your doubt. He says, no, you doubt? Okay, let's work through that. Let's move through doubt to greater trust and understanding. Which is why then at the end of all of that, at the end of all of his doubt, Thomas actually gives the greatest proclamation in all of the gospels of who Jesus is. He says, my Lord and my God. No one else uttered a faith like that. But to get to that, he had to work through his doubt. See, we see something similar here at the end of our song. Listen to these verses from 23 onward. These are some of the most precious verses in the whole Bible. Some of the greatest declaration of confidence in who God is. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is beautiful. But you don't get that unless you work through verses 1 to 17. You don't get confidence and faith without working through great doubt. So what is Asaph doubting? Let's look at it. Verse 1. Here's the doubt, right? I said, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God's supposed to be good to those people who walk with him. The people who follow him and trust in him and live the way God intends for them to live, those are the people God's supposed to bless. But he says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. 
My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm looking around, God, and it doesn't seem like those who are following you are prospering. It seems like the wicked are those who are prospering. They're the ones who are rebelling and rejecting you, and it feels like all's good with them. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Life's so easy with them. They don't struggle like, do, like I do. They eat whatever they want to eat. The hardest decision they have to face is, do I drink lobster with white wine or beef with red wine? They don't actually eat lobster. They're Jews, but you know. Verse 7. Verse 6, sorry. Their, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They, they walk around and they have all the status. They're just flashing their bling at everyone who would look at them. And they're just wicked. Their, their wickedness is as natural as their, their own clothes on their back. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. They walk around like they own the place, God. They plan whatever they want. They accomplish whatever they want. They think they're God. And it seems like nothing is stopping them. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? See, people are looking around and they're seeing them live the high life. And they're like, well, I want to be like that. God, don't you see? They're, they're leading people astray. They're, they're causing people to follow them instead of follow you. They're the ones with all the influence. They're the ones writing books. They're the social media influencers that everyone wants to be like. And so verse 12, behold, these are the wicked God. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, God, I have kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. They prosper, God, and I'm struggling here. I'm the one who's hurting. And I'm following you, God. I just feel like throwing in the towel. I'm kind of done with you. My dad is my hero. He's also probably one of the most spiritually mature followers of Jesus that I know. It felt like everything my dad did was to serve Jesus. He, he was a doctor and he would kind of cut back on the number of patients he could see so that he could, he could spend more time with each patient. He'd come home at like 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and then he'd just stay up until however long he could playing with us as kids. He also was a lay pastor, and he wouldn't start writing his sermons until 10 p.m. on Saturday night because he wanted to make sure he prioritized us as kids. He was also a missionary to Russia. He's written 
two books now on how to follow Jesus that he just kind of almost gives away for free. It feels like everything my dad did was to follow Jesus. But for the past three years, he himself has been on disability leave. He's been in and out of the doctor office himself. He can barely walk. He's four surgeries and counting now into trying to get better. He can barely walk and he takes hydromorphone at night just to be able to sleep. If I'm honest, it it feels like sometimes I ask, God, what was the point of serving you all those years? You you know people like this. Or, Or you feel like this. Faithful followers of Jesus who are going through hard times, experiencing health issues, marital strife, heartbreak in your families. But there's people out there who are living like the devil and they have whatever they want. See, there are not only different causes of doubt, there's also different expressions of doubt. See, it's one thing to just doubt God's existence. God, I just don't even know if you're out there and you're real, and that's fine. That's one type of doubt. Another type of doubt, though, says, I just don't know if living God's way is the best way. I look around, and it seems like people who are kind of doing their own thing have it better than I do. See, all the people getting ahead at work, they're the ones who are ruthless, cruel, and borderline abusive at their work. So I just don't know, what's the point with being kind and patient and gracious? God, my friends who are sleeping around, it feels like they're having all the fun, they're getting all the affirmation and affection. And what's the point then, God, of waiting for marriage? You know, my marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. I wish I just have a little bit more freedom. So maybe I just throw in the towel. I just, I just call it quits and I just walk away. Maybe we just be easier that way. See, sometimes what you see and what you experience and what you feel in your heart doesn't always make sense with what you know. Sometimes it doesn't feel like following Jesus is the best thing to do. So Asaph says in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. It just didn't make sense, God. Can't wrap my head around it. So then what changes? What what changes here? What, What brings Asaph from doubt to that great proclamation of faith? Well, I think the first thing is he looks internal. He looks internal. If you go back to verse three, Asaph is really just honest here. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's envy. There's there's envy in his heart. See, Asaph says, look, honestly, if things probably weren't going so bad with me, I probably wouldn't be having all this doubt about you, God. There's something going on in Asaph's heart. There's a a sin issue in Asaph's heart that is affecting the way his mind is operating. And so Tim Keller, again, says the first thing you need to do to 
confront your doubt, to work through your doubt, is you need to doubt your doubts. You need to doubt your doubts. Who, who says that your doubt is authoritative? You, you need to question the very thing that you're questioning. You need to find out if there's some sin, some own desire in your own heart that's causing you to actually just question who God is. Maybe you just want something and it feels like following God, you don't get that thing, and so you're starting to question who God is. Let me read you this lengthy quote from Aldous Huxley. He's a famous atheist who uh, supported the philosophy of meaninglessness. He writes this. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation that we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain type of morality. Listen to this. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of those systems claimed that in some way they embodied the Christian meaning. There was an admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. See, he's just honest. Honestly, I didn't want God to be real. I didn't want this whole Christianity thing to be real because I just kind of wanted to have sex with whoever, whenever, however I wanted to. I, I wanted to be free, and it felt like those things were putting chains on me. So I wrote against Christianity. It was, it was convenient. See, if you're, if you're gonna really be honest with your doubt, then you need to doubt your doubts. You need to look internal. But secondly, you need to look external. So in verse 16, he says this again. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until... I couldn't understand this until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What is it that he saw or experienced in the temple? Well, we don't know for certain, but I think we can take a pretty good guess. See, as he's actually walking up to the temple, the first thing that he would experience is not something he sees, but actually something he hears. He'd hear singing. He'd hear the people of God gathered to sing. They'd be singing about how God saved them from Egypt. They'd be singing about how God delivered them from their oppressors. They'd be singing about how God brought them to the promised land. And in that moment, Asaph is starting to be reminded of the truth. He, he's hearing the, the, the truth proclaimed from this bunch of people who had lived that out, who, who had known and seen God save and deliver them. He's being reminded that God is faithful. So that's why in verse 26 and following, he's able to say, look, my flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's going to be with me. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. 
For I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's as though he wants to join in that song. You're right. God is good. He is a refuge. See, some of you are doubting right now because you're only getting one side of the story. The only story that you're hearing is the story of the world. They're giving you a narrative, and that's all you're hearing, and so you're doubting who God is. If you're going to be intellectually honest, you need to hear our story. You need to hear our story as Christians. You need to listen to us sing. Not because it sounds pretty, but because what we sing is what we really believe. Hear what we have come to actually know about God. Hear how God has saved us, delivered us from, from our own sexual bondage, how delivered us from our, our, just our, our temptations. Hear how God is, is good, how God is faithful to us. Some of you doubt because you've cut yourself off from the church for so long and you're not hearing the story, our story, the church's story of how God is good. So, so he hears the singing, he, he's making his way up to the temple and then he enters into the sanctuary. And all of a sudden his other senses are awakened. The first thing he probably experiences is smell. He smells death. And then he sees knives and gore. He's not greeted with smoke machines, glossy pulpits, or upscale bands. He, he's greeted with priests flicking blood off of their fingers and their hands. Blood is flowing down, and there's a guiltless bull sacrificed on the altar. In that moment, his doubt begins to subside, begins to make sense. See, that bull lying on the altar was a picture of what God will ultimately do with sin. God will ultimately judge sin. The wicked will ultimately perish. The bull's fate will be their fate. See, your 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life is not all the facts. All the facts is that you also die. And then you have to deal with God. Then you have to be judged by God. You will give an account for your right and your wrong. He has to have an eternal perspective. So verse 18 says, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall through, and how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You're like a dream, and when God wakes up, if it's a nightmare, he just forgets you and you're gone sent into eternal destruction. The fate of the bull is the fate of those who reject God and reject his perfect law. But he realizes one more thing, one last thing. It's that that bull is not only a picture of judgment, 
it's also a picture of grace. Asaph knew that he actually deserved the same fate as that bull. But he knew that there was a way to be forgiven. See, Asaph knew that, that the bull died so that he didn't have to die. But the bull was a substitute. If he trusted in God, something else or someone else could forgive him for his own sins and his own wickedness that he's done. See, I think what Asaph really saw in the temple that day was a glimpse of Jesus. He glimpsed Jesus on the cross. He glimpsed someone who lived the perfect life so that he didn't have to. He glimpsed someone who died on the cross so that he didn't have to pay for his own sins. All his wrongs, all his envies, all of it taken away by Jesus, including his doubt. Including his doubt. Listen to verse 21 and following. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph's confessing his sin here. He's saying, I, I stopped trusting you. Verse 23, nevertheless. I, I doubted you. Verse 23, nevertheless. I didn't want to keep following you, God, nevertheless. I thought I'd be better without you, nevertheless. I wanted to walk away, nevertheless, verse 23. I am still with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, God doesn't just forgive you and say, okay, now you're on your own. Now you better stop doubting me. Now, our relationship with God is not determined or based on our tenacity or our loyalty or our resilience. It's based on God's. It's based on his loyalty towards us. God holds us even when we don't want to hold on to him. So trust money. But when money fails you, where will you turn then? Trust success, but... Success will abandon you. Trust beauty, but beauty will fade. See, Jesus is the only one who doesn't leave us. Only in Jesus do we find grace in the midst of our failures and sin and doubt. Let me end with this. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family and I were in Fort St. John, and we were going on a hike together. So we were in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. Anyways, we're hiking on this hike, and uh, we kind of come to this, this creek or this river. It, this is no, like, Hell's Gate, Rapids kind of situation. But, you know, if you, if you fall into the creek, you're, you'll end up down the ways for a little bit. And, you know, um, my 18-month-year-old 18 18 son, I was so happy when he was walking at an early age now I totally regret that because 
he feels like he can do anything. He feels like he's like the next American ninja warrior. And so he's just like, don't hold on to me. I got this. And, and we're like about to cross the creek. And I'm like, you need to hold my hand. So I'm, I'm grabbing his hand and he's like falling down to the floor. He's like, and trying to get his hand out, out of me. I'm like, okay, fine. You, let's see you do this on your own. And so we start, we start crossing this creek and he's honestly, he's doing okay for a little bit. He's, he's getting off on his own, just fine. And then I can just see it. I was like, well, he's going to get to that rock. He's going to put his rock in there. He's totally going to slip. He's going to fall in the water. And so we're walking along. He gets to that rock and he slips. But right then, I grab his hand. See, he let go of my hand, but my hand was still always right there. That's like our God. We let go of his hand. Ah! God, I got this. I don't need you anymore. Think there's a better way. And God lets us give it a go for a little bit. Hard times. And then God goes, I got you. I'm holding on to you even when you don't hold on to me. God, Jesus, is worth your faith. 